0: this morning, we are going to be in John chapter 19. John chapter 19. You know, and all of the Bible is important. Every word written in this Bible is inspired by God. But the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is a culmination of all that Jesus came to accomplish. It's the rescue plan that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit had planned before the creation of the world. This morning, we're going to be looking at the crucifixion. The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ is really the climax of redemption, redemptive history. It's the focal point of the plan of salvation. Now, all throughout, John has told us in his gospel that everything that he wrote down, he wrote for a very specific reason. He says, I'm putting these things in this book for you because I want you to believe that that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing who Jesus is, that you would have life. And the same is true of the crucifixion. John's account of the crucifixion is actually different. When I say different, not that it's like some contradictory event, but John's account of the crucifixion is unique compared to the other Gospels. And there's a reason why I... My sense is that there are five things that John wants us to see that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ as we look at the most horrific event in all of history, yet the most beautiful event in all of history. John says, I want you to believe so that in believing you would have life, a life that will transform you. So typically we read, we pray after the text. I would like us to pray before we read this text because my concern is that as a Christian, we're pretty familiar with the crucifixion story, and I don't want our ears and our hearts to be dull as we hear this. So let's go to the word, to the Lord in prayer before we read His Word. Heavenly Father, we come before You, and, and Father, thank You again for that word, desperate, Lord. We are desperate. And Father, um, Christianity is not about a set of facts. What? Lord, it is about a set of facts, but those facts mean something so deep. And those facts are designed to, to penetrate our heart. And those facts are, are created by you to, to cut deep into our souls and produce life. And so, Father, as we listen to your word, Father, would you protect us from just dismissing things as, Oh, yeah, I've heard that before. Oh, Father, would you give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the hearts to feel, all that you have for us. Jesus, there is nothing more profound than your crucifixion and your raising from the dead. This morning, we're looking at the cross that you went to. Spirit of God, please, please pour yourself out upon us so that we would Be changed this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in John chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 16b, so the second half of the verse. John 19. And if you don't have a Bible, the words will be projected. But I do encourage you, if you do have a Bible, um, to turn there yourself. So this is after Pilate has had Jesus flogged. He's going to be handed over the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place that where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered them, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But his tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. But then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took to his own home after this Jesus knowing that all was now finished said to fulfill scripture I thirst a jar full of sour wine stood there so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth when Jesus had received the sour wine he said it is finished he bowed his head And he gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. they will look upon him who they have pierced. So Jesus had been brutally beaten and flogged inside the city. But see, crucifixions would take place outside the city. So they put the the long crossbeam not not the full cross, but just that cross beam upon his shoulders and made him carry it out. But his body was so beaten and broken from the torture that he physically couldn't carry it. We're told in another gospel that, that the soldiers grabbed a man named Simon and said, you're gonna need to carry it the rest of the way. And so... They took it out farther enough from the city, but not so far that that people wouldn't be able to see. Because, see, the Romans, the crucifixion was designed to let people know this is what happens to criminals. They wanted to put the criminals on display so that everybody would know and be afraid. So as Jesus stumbles and finally gets to the site where the crucifixion would take place, it's interesting, John just says they crucified him. John doesn't give a lot of details here. Well, some of that could be because the readers would have been very familiar with what took place during crucifixion. You see, the soldiers, they, would com- they completely stripped Jesus naked. So here is the Son of God, though in flesh, who's been mocked, they put a, a, a crown of thorns and they didn't set it on gently. They pushed it down into his head so that all the thorns would rip the skin of his skull. And now they strip him naked and then they put that wooden crossbeam onto the upright on the ground connect those together and then they would have nailed his hands and feet. And there would have been a little foot piece that was designed for those being tortured so that when, when they were on that cross, they could push up. They would have lifted that cross with Jesus' body nailed naked to a cross and it would have dropped into place. Can you imagine the pain of your raw back rubbing against the wood, against the nails, just jerking your body into place? he would hang there and that little platform would be so that he could push up to catch some breath and then have to let down again. And while Jesus is hanging on that cross soldiers take his clothes and they separate it out. And it wasn't just soldiers there. We're told that there were four other women Women who love Jesus, who follow Jesus, along with the disciple whom Jesus loved, with John. One of those women was Jesus' own mother. And to be there was was dangerous because these are considered criminals and you're associating yourself with one who's being judged. But these four women were there, Jesus' mother being one of them. And as Jesus hangs there in excruciating pain and in shameful agony, looks over And says to John and to Mary, Mother, woman, here is your son. Son, here is your mother. And then John tells us that Jesus knows that all that he was to accomplish is now finished. And so Jesus says, I thirst. His mouth is parched. And so they give him some cheap sour wine and he can finally speak well All it says in John is just that he said it is finished. But we know from other gospel writers that it was with a loud cry that Jesus cries out, it is finished. we're told that the Jews, they they couldn't have a cross, a a body remaining on a cross during the Sabbath. Um, But particularly this was difficult for them because it was during the Passover. It says it was a high feast. And so A Jew, a person executed on a tree like this, was considered to be under God's curse. And if a body was left exposed, hanging on a cross, then the whole land would be defiled. So they wanted the three men taken down. See, crucifixion was designed to be a very shameful, painful, slow death. And so, in order to speed up the death, the soldiers start on the outside. And they would have taken a big mallet and just bashed the legs of the two men on the outside so that they could no longer push up and get breath. And it would cause them to die quicker. But when they got to Jesus, they realized he had already died. So one of the soldiers takes a spear and thrusts it through his side. And we're told that water and blood come from his side. Jesus was indeed already dead. At the close of this passage, John says, I saw it. I bore witness to this. And my testimony is true. I'm telling the truth so that you may believe. There are five things that John wants us to see and believe this morning. We're going to go through each of those. It's not five long points. But the first is that John wants us to see and believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the promised Messiah. You see, ever since the fall in the garden, God had promised that He was going to send one who was going to redeem, who was going to conquer, who was going to put things right. And this is that Jesus. You see, Jesus is the Messiah that the prophets of God in the Old Testament spoke of who would come to save God's people. Three times John tells us that specific things happen to fulfill the Scripture. Now, when John says that, that these things fulfill the Scripture, he's saying that these things that happened during Jesus' crucifixion are fulfillments of messianic pictures and prophecies of the Old Testament. You see, often there are these Old Testament passages that were referring to something very specific and historical to that time. However, they also were pointing to another, to Jesus. And so we're going to see that These Old Testament passages often were spoken of David, yet they were also pointing to the the greater king, Jesus. So let's look at those. In verses 23 through 24, we're told that the soldiers divided up Jesus' garments and cast lots for his tunic. And that's a reference to Psalm 22, verse 18. It says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I would encourage you, go look at Psalm 22. All of Psalm 22 has such beautiful pictures of the crucifixion. You see, this is a fulfillment. Jesus would have had a turban or a headdress, an outer robe, a sash or a belt, and sandals. Four four articles of clothing on the outside. And so the four soldiers said, all right, let's just divide these up. But then they came to this tunic. And the tunic would have been kind of like the, the undergarment. It was a long one-piece that was underneath his robe. We're told that this was a special because it was made out of one piece. It was woven out of just one piece. And so rather than tear it up and ruin its value, they said, We're going to cast lots. And that'd be like the equivalent of gambling. We're going to throw some dice, and whoever wins gets to keep it. These soldiers didn't know the Jewish scriptures. Some people are going to say, oh, well, some of the fulfillment people knew, and so they just tried to make sure that it happened that way. These soldiers didn't know those scriptures. These soldiers were fulfilling the very words of God just by doing what they would have normally done. Jesus is the promised Messiah. The second fulfillment we see is in verse 28 and 29. It says that after Jesus, knowing that it was all finished, said... And this is what's to fulfill Scripture. He says, I thirst. We see that in two places. We see Psalm twenty-two, fifteen, 15 and Psalm 69, 21. In Psalm 22, this is David speaking. He says, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus was parched. And then in Psalm 69, verse 21, David says, And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. (laughs) Jesus knew the Scriptures. He was the focal point of the Scriptures. He wrote the Scriptures. And as He speaks these words, I thirst and then drink sour wine, Jesus wants us to know that what David was speaking of in the Psalms were also speaking of Him. And that all of David's sufferings We're also pointing to him. See, David was a king, right? But there was another king that was coming, the true king who could restore God's kingdom. And it's this Jesus. It's this Jesus. The last fulfillment that we see is in verses 31 through 37. It says, he actually quotes, he says, Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture, they will look upon him who they have pierced. Not one of his bones will be broken. These are references to the Passover lamb. Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. Numbers verse 9, verse 12. We would have, the, the connection here. He says, the lamb shall be eaten in one house. Remember, when, when God is going to deliver his people out of Egypt, he says, I want you to prepare this lamb And this lamb is what is going to protect you because you're going to take the blood of this lamb and you're going to put it over the doorposts. And if you do as I say and the blood is covering you, then you will be protected. You will be saved. Your life will be spared. And this is what he says about that lamb. He says, you shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house and you shall not break any of its bones. See, John is connecting back. Jesus is that Passover lamb. He is the one whose blood will be shed and will be covering God's people to protect them. And not one of his bones shall be broken. Psalm 34, verse 19. Or, uh, 34, 20, right? 19 through 20, there we go. Psalm 34, 19 through 20. This is David. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones not one of them will be broken. Do you see the parallels? Do you see the fulfillments? And then the last fulfillment of Scripture, he says, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. This comes from the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says, and I will pour out on the house of David and in the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and a plea for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. I really want to encourage you to look at Zechariah. Zechariah was prophesying about a future siege against the Jewish nation, um, and there was going to be devastation against that nation because of their rejection and their lack of repentance to turn back to God. But Zechariah also is promising a future time when God's going to rescue his people and punish those who have attacked him. And these promises of Zechariah are pointing to the ultimate time where God will deliver his people, the true Messiah. The one who the Jews pierced will be the one who brings them deliverance. Now, why is all this here? John MacArthur, in a sermon on John 19, said, Herein lies the glory of Christ in this scene of horror. It is one fulfillment after another, after another, after another, down to the most minute detail. God is unfolding his purpose in Christ with magnificence. See, John wants us to understand here that these events were not accidents. And I hope you don't walk away saying, oh, wow, that's really cool. Do you see how this connected to this? Yes, it's amazing that they connect, but there's something so much bigger here. This is a God who has orchestrated all of history and everything is coming to pass exactly how he prophesied. We've been talking with our high school students that we don't have a blind faith. We're not just crossing our fingers and hoping this stuff is true. You see, there are things that give us confidence. There are things that help us have a reasonable faith. It's still faith. But this isn't just... Oh, man, I wonder if, I hope it is. We have a God who orchestrated history to guarantee that down to the smallest details, everything happened exactly as he said it would. Believe, and in believing, we have life. John also says, I want you not just to believe that this is the promised Messiah who God spoke of, but this is the king. This is King Jesus. In verse 19 through 22, we see that there was a placard put on top of the cross. It was very customary to nail that that sign on a cross saying the reason for execution. And Pilate himself decided what was going to be written on this one. And he wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. See, the Jews were pushing Pilate, and Pilate said, I can't find reason for this guy to be crucified. But the Jews were pushing hard, and they said, They said, look, he's claiming to be king, and we only have one king. We only have Caesar, right? And Pilate knew that they were just putting him in a bad spot. He knew that that wasn't the case for the Jews. So, So Pilate says, you know what? You want to back me into a corner? This is my way of sticking it to you. I'm going to put it up. And I put it up in three languages so that everybody who passes by is going to see, this is king of the Jews. Well, the Jews hated that. They said, no, 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 no. Just say, this is the man who claims to be king of the Jews. And Pilate says, nope. What I've written stays. See, even as Pilate is mocking the religious leaders who are accusing Jesus, do you see the truth that was being proclaimed? But think, this is a king? What king hangs naked on a wooden cross? What king is beaten and tortured like this? This does not look like a conquering king. This kind of king is utter foolishness to the world. And it was utter foolishness to us until God opened our eyes to see that this is the king who came as a suffering servant. This is the king who came to take the shame and guilt upon himself. And this is the king who conquered the real enemy, sin and death. And there is no other king like this in all of history. Amen? Amen. Let me ask you, is this a king worthy of bowing down to and acknowledging this king in reverence? Jesus isn't our homeboy. Jesus is our friend, but he is king. And as king, he is worthy to be honored with all of our lives. John says, believe this Jesus is king and live. John also wants us to believe that Jesus is sovereign and in control. In verses 28 through 30, we're going to see this. When I preached the, the sermon on um, in the garden where Jesus uh, was was first captured, one of the things we talked about, how, how Jesus was in control the entire time. Nothing happened outside of his control. We see it happen in the trial, and we continue to see this here. See, As Jesus was carrying the cross out of the city, remember the cross beam that he would have had, they offered him some, some wine. It was a special kind of wine. It had mixed in some things that basically would have created a sedative. And many people who were going to be crucified would take that wine because it would numb them. It would help them become unconscious quicker so that they wouldn't experience all of the pain of suffering. And Jesus says, no, I refuse to drink that. See, Jesus was going to be in control the entire time. There was no numbing anything. He was not going to be unconscious. He wasn't taking any shortcuts. Jesus was going to drink the full cup of God's wrath, and he was going to be aware and in control the entire time. And in verse 28, this is amazing. John says, under the the understanding of the Holy Spirit, John says, Jesus knew that it was all now finished. He's on the cross, and Jesus is aware that all that needed to be accomplished. And we're going to talk about that towards the end. But it was done. And so now was the time. His mission was complete. And so in verse 30, he received a sour wine. That's different. That was just a wine so that he could speak again clearly. He cries out, it is finished. And then it says, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Do you catch that? Jesus gave up his spirit when it was time. It was his decision to give up his spirit. No one took his life from him he laid it down. Jesus is in complete control. Let me ask you, if Jesus was in control while he was being tortured, beaten, crucified, if he was in control during the darkest moment, is he not still in control as he reigns victoriously in heaven now? Isn't he still in control of our lives Now, it doesn't mean that we always understand how he's in control. We don't always see the expression of his control in ways that make sense to us. But listen, things in life do not shock Jesus, they do not come as a surprise to Jesus. He's got it all in his hands. He is in control. So, John wants you to believe Jesus, the promised Messiah, the King is truly in control all the time. And now it brings us to the fourth one. John says, I want you to believe that Jesus cares and provides. And this is verses 25 through 27 where we see Jesus speak to his mother. Remember, Jesus has been on the cross for several hours by this time. There are probably flies beginning to swarm around him. We can't imagine the pain as he hangs there. And as the most significant act in all of history is taking place, where God makes his son who knew no sin to be sin, so that in Christ we could be the righteousness of God, as Jesus is bearing the weight of sin of the world upon him, he looks at his mother and takes care of her. He looks to his mother and says, woman, and that's not a derogatory term. It's, it's a, a tender, honoring term. And he says, Woman, John is now going to take care of you. John, take care of Mary. See, Mary's husband Joseph was probably already dead at this point, and so Jesus and his brothers would have been responsible for taking care of their widowed mother. And Jesus' siblings, remember, at this time, did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. And so Jesus wants to make sure that Mary is provided for and cared for, not just physically, but spiritually. He knew. I thought about this. Why didn't Jesus tell John during the Last Supper when they were reclining together? Why didn't he just lean over and say, hey, you know what's gonna happen? I want you to take care of Mary. I can't say for certain, but my sense would be is that Jesus knew that this was the very moment of some of the deepest pain. It was like a sword piercing through Mary's heart. And it was at that time that she needed that care. And it also displays that in the midst of whatever's happening, Jesus is still has his eye on you. And he's taking care of you. Do you see the heart of God? Jesus went to the cross because he wanted to bring glory to the Father by rescuing humanity that was lost in sin, who were enemies of God needing to be reconciled. I'm concerned though that sometimes we make our Christian life all about our sin. It's all about seeing my sin, it's about battling my sin, it's about confessing my sin. And and I think sometimes we feel like the only way that God interacts with us is dealing with our sin. And yes, dealing with our sin is important. It's vitally important. The reason that Jesus cares about us is because sin is an attack on the glory of God, the Father. And He knows the devastating effects of sin upon us. And He knows that sin won't bring us life, but in fact brings upon death. And we do need to look to our sin because we seeing our sin makes us more grateful for what Jesus has done for us. But do not lose that Jesus is cares completely about us. He destroyed the penalty and power of sin so that we can experience full life in Him in relationship with the Father through the power of the Spirit. He knows the number of hairs on your head. You see, by removing the barrier and the broken relationship that sin created, we can now experience fully and completely nothing but grace and mercy from God. So yes, let us look to our sin. But let us not forget that Jesus cares intimately for us in the details of our lives. You see, Jesus cares about our hurts, our pains. He cares about our struggles. He cares about our struggles with body image. He cares about our struggles with friendships. He cares about our struggles with school, with our jobs, with our finances, with the car that breaks down, with the disappointments in life. He cares about all those things. You see, He was taking care of Mary's greatest need, her sin. And in doing so, he was taking care of Mary completely. And he provided for her. And he's going to do the same for us. So believe. Believe that Jesus cares. And he provides for you. Brings us to our last point. Number five. Believe that Jesus completed the work. And this is the most crucial for us today. Believe that Jesus completed the work. The last words that Jesus spoke, he cried out, was, it is finished. That word, to it's a it's a verb written in a tense that means the action has been totally completed. It's done. It's the same word that the Greeks would use in commerce, and they would stamp upon a product or upon a purchase receipt that said, paid in full it is finished. What was finished? What was finished? What was finished is that Jesus completed the mission that God the Father had sent Him to accomplish. He completed the work the Father had given Him to do, to love His own to the end. You see, what He completed was, on that cross, Jesus took all the wrath for all the sin that had ever been committed and that would ever be committed. Jesus was crushed for our wickedness. Jesus paid the full penalty for all that our rejection of God deserved. He completely and totally satisfied God's righteous anger against our sin. Every ounce of God's judgment and wrath was poured out upon Jesus so that there would not be even a drop left for those who put their faith and trust in him. And this is why God is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins. Because they've all, all been dealt with. You realize when he cried out, that was no cry of death. That was no cry of defeat. That was the victory cry. That was the victory cry. You see, for those of us who are in Christ, there is Nothing left to separate us. There is no judgment remaining. There is no wrath to be poured out upon us. That can be hard to believe, though, isn't it? Man, God, how can you forgive me when I've sinned so many times? God, how can you forgive me from this sin that's so egregious? How can you forgive me when I keep doing it over and over and over? Look, it doesn't mean that there's not consequences, it doesn't mean that there won't be discipline. But nothing will separate us from the love of Christ now. Nothing can now separate us from our relationship as a child of God. Nothing. There are no more sacrifices to be made to try to earn our way back to God. There's no penance to be made to try to earn our way back to God. We don't have to fear that God is going to finally just say, you know what, I'm done with you. No. Because it was finished in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're here this morning, I particularly have a burden if you've grown up in church and you've heard these things before. Just because this is true of Jesus, that it was finished on the cross, does not mean that you are experiencing that. You see, there's a big difference between saying, yes, oh, I believe all that, versus I am going to trust that that is true. And so my hope is not that I can be good enough, that God is pleased with me because I've been a pretty good person My hope is that Jesus finished it for me. And if you've never put your trust in Jesus, I just encourage you to do so. And there's nothing magical. All it is is, Jesus, I believe that that's true. And in the best way I know how, I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins and I believe that you took them for me. For those of us who are believers, let's hold on to these truths and believe these truths so deeply. Let this go deep into our hearts. I pray that the Spirit would show us we're never going to mind the depths of this. And there's so much more in here. And I'm never going to fully grasp all that it means for it to truly be finished. I'm still learning more and more of what that, how incredible that is and how to live in the good of that. And that's why God brings us together. I pray that these truths we would believe and that it would draw our hearts to sing, What a Savior we have. Let's pray.